0: This week, internet and privacy lawyer Anna Manley joins us for our feature interview this evening. Security Weekly curmudgeon correspondent Jeff Mann joins us to talk about his travels to IBM's Interconnect conference. And in the security news this week, Wi-Fi troubles for smartphones, hacking TVs via broadcast signals, getting locked out of your garage, Android ransomware, and Wi-Fi plus a camera plus an adult toy equals disaster all that and more on this edition of paul security weekly this is security weekly for security professionals by security professionals broadcasting live from g-unit studios in rhode island it's the show where exploits run wild packets aren't the only things getting sniffed and the cocktails flow steady it's paul security weekly Brought to you by the SANS Institute, the most trusted source for computer security certification training and research. Visit SANS.org to explore their full curriculum and latest training offerings. NetSparker, the developers of desktop and cloud-based web application security scanners that enable you to automatically identify vulnerabilities in your web applications and web services. NetSparker scanners employ a unique and dead accurate vulnerability scanning engine that automatically verifies vulnerabilities with their proof of concept. For more information, visit them on the web at NetSparker.com or email at contact at NetSparker.com. LogRhythm's NetMon Freemium delivers real-time network visibility to quickly identify emerging threats in your IT environment. NetMon Freemium is a free commercial-grade network forensics and traffic analytics solution. You can use NetMon Freemium's powerful capabilities to search against all observed network traffic, identify abnormal traffic patterns and application usage, and quickly analyze full-packet captures. Take the first step towards real-time network visibility. Visit LogRhythm.com forward slash freemium to learn more and download it today. Welcome to Paul Security Weekly, episode 508 for April 6th, 2017. I'm your host, Paul Asadorian. Pretty much wishing I was still in Orlando, Florida, as far as the <laughs> weather goes, as I'm here in my winter hat, because it's cold. Uh, on the lines via Skype, Mr. Jeff Mann joins us. Jeff, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, Paul. How's it going? I wasn't in Orlando, but I spent the weekend in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Is that where, oh no, you weren't at IBM's Interconnect, that wasn't in Milwaukee, was it? No, you no, were no, no. that you were was in Las different. Vegas. I, I've been on the okay. road a lot the last couple of weeks, but uh, Vegas was a couple of weeks ago, last weekend was CypherCon, CypherCon. I got this really, the coolest badge ever. <laughs> really? That's saying something. I spoke at Hack for Kids, which nice. in my opinion is probably the second coolest badge ever. That is, those are pretty cool. Shout out to all those guys up there.
0: I like the what is the cube is that there's some kind of cipher I'm assuming
1: Um so the cube there's actually uh I put a video in the show notes they they did they made a video about the making of these cubes it's kind of like it's very own capture the flag game you you plug it in it recharges so it has a little port somewhere mm-hmm. take my word for it and as you unlock the puzzles, you can take control of the LED lights that are inside and outside, and make it nice. like different colors and all sorts of things. And people were having tons of fun with it all weekend. So I promised Larry I'd bring it up to the studio and let Larry play with it. Nice. And uh, we'll we'll hang it on the badge wall right behind you there, so anybody can have at it.
0: Wow! Thank you very much. That's that's awesome, Jeff. All right. Um, So speaking of conferences, the 10th anniversary edition of Source Boston is being held this April, April 24th through the 25th are some training sessions, and the 26th through the 27th will be conference talks featuring awesome speakers from the security community. Uh, I will actually be giving one of those talks. Which one am I giving? I think it's my IoT, my latest IoT talk. Like it's the, I can't believe I'm giving another IoT talk again iot talk which will be fun you'll, you'll like it you'll enjoy it
1: oh boy iot
0: events will take place in boston at the courtyard marriott downtown security weekly listeners get a hundred dollar discount early bird specials end soon so if you're going to sign up for training or conferences do it soon and use the code security weekly and visit SourceConference.com to do that it's a lot of fun good excuse to come to bean town all righty Let's get into our uh, interview segment for this evening. Um, it is with Anna Manley. Uh, Anna is an internet and privacy lawyer based in Nova Scotia, Canada. Anna, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Um, so, Anna, tell us how... I, I usually ask how you get your start in information security, but how did you get your start uh, doing <laughs> law on the internet and privacy?
2: Uh, well, it's kind of a weird story because, I mean... You just kind of fall into these practice areas. I know that, that sounds odd because you think that I'd have to start out studying it, but initially I was studying criminal law, and then I started getting into studying more of the the, you know, the black hat activities and a lot of the online stuff, and it just developed from there.
0: What were some of the early uh, cases that you studied, or, or were there cases or situations that made you want to study like, internet and privacy laws more closely?
2: Well, most of them had to do with the difficulty with the courts with grappling with some of these issues. So I dealt mostly initially with the difficulties judges have with actually even learning this stuff because a lot of them didn't just didn't have a grasp on it. So
1: that was. Well, isn't it also fair to say I'm not a lawyer, but I. I pretend to be one on TV sometimes. Aren't judges sort of accustomed to, you know, they or their staff going through, you know, decades, if not hundreds of years, of case law and precedent-setting decisions that have already been made, and yeah. with with all this internet law, they're kind of winging it.
2: Well, it's true. I mean, they are kind of winging it, but they they need, and I mean, most of them they talk to experts. They try to, you know, get a foundation in it. But in the initial cases where they were really struggling with it, and some of my my first interest in the law was with intellectual property. And that's where the courts really started to deal with some of the more complicated issues with technology and law, right? Because you have developments in patents, uh, developments copyright law. So they started to deal with it there. And the courts now are taking cues from IP law. In how they how they're dealing with a lot of these new cases.
0: Well, that, well, that uh, but they're applying IP law to new IP law cases, or they're applying IP law to like TCP/IP law.
2: <laughs> well, they like it's it's really more the method of how they deal with it. So it's and, it's, more, it's law, really
0: more UDP. I gotcha. Yeah, TCP. that makes sense.
2: <laughs> well, and I mean they do it by analogy, right? So in IP law, when you have a new technology coming in, uh, judges don't really know how to deal with it. So they look to a similar technology that they've already figured out how to deal with, and they draw a line between the two of them, any comparison that they can. And obviously they're assisted by the lawyers who are making arguments, And, and then they make a ruling.
0: What I always found uh, interesting, Anna, and, and I've paid attention to some of these cases largely because of the industry that we're in, but also because it is kind of like hacking when you look at the way patent laws are manipulated for the uh, or the way the patent trolls are trying to manipulate the law in their favor. It is sort of like hacking. What developments have happened uh, recently that have helped uh, the patent troll situation?
2: Well, I mean, it, the situation is different in Canada than it is in the U.S., uh, but some of the similar developments have been that, I mean, courts, although they've recognized that patent trolls exist, they're really bad, historically bad, at figuring out how to draw the line. Like, this is a patent troll, this isn't a patent troll. They're having a really hard time doing that. Um, they've gotten better, but at the same time, they're lagging behind, and they patent trolls still manage to take the day a lot of the time because you have to remember that these people are well healed.
0: Yeah, I I always found that that interesting is when technologists come up, with, you know, uh, in front of something like that kind of challenge. Um, <clears throat> some of the ways you deal with that are very different, right? Because I think a lot of us are like, well, we would just fight it like any kind of troll. Like in our world, like well, we'll just you know fight them on a level playing field, but that's kind of not how it works, huh? Because <laughs> fighting it can well, be no, very expensive, really. right? <laughs>
2: that's right. That's right. And actually, it's funny because in, uh, up here in Canada, we have a very interesting case going on right now. Um, it's, it's actually copyright litigation where we have the internet service providers are suing the small time sellers of those preloaded set top boxes that are loaded with Kodi and Kodi media players or IT, IPTV boxes. So you have a really big player, a telecommunications giant on this side, that's actually joined forces with their rival, another very large telecommunications giant, to stomp out all these little guys. And they're doing it one by one.
0: So they're suing the consumer or they're suing the maker of the set-top box?
2: They are suing the distributors of the set-top boxes. Interesting.
0: Interesting. So it's they're very they're, interesting. But, yeah. but now, the distributors of the set-top boxes, are they preloading Kodi software on
2: those boxes? Some of them are. Some of okay. them are. And, th- and they're only going after the ones that are preloading the boxes. Mm-hmm. Um, but th- they're saying that it's, it's an offense under our Copyright Act where it's you're authorizing copyright infringement. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's, that's how they're going after them.
0: All right. And so now we're like having a mock trial. But so Kodi by itself, though, doesn't contain... Any code that uh, directly allows you to violate copyright laws, right? The software that you uh, add on to that could, but by itself, all of the plugins that are contained within Kodi allow perfectly legal access to free content. Correct?
2: Well, uh, yeah. The, the, well, that's right. And the, but the telecoms are making the argument that just by providing access, by making it easier for the consumer, you're you're, ac- you're authorizing copyright infringement.
0: How how's that going? Like, how are the How's that going for them so far?
2: <laughs> well, you have to remember, you have t- you have two big players on this side that mm. have all the fancy lawyers in Montreal and Toronto and wherever else. And they're fighting all these little people who sell these things at flea markets or, you know, like like farmers markets and things like that some of the, and a lot of them sell them on the internet they don't make much money but they make enough that it's worth it for them mm-hmm. so they're selling these boxes and then they they get these big scary letters from these these the two largest telecommunications companies in Canada and you know they're they're all running scared basically
1: so nothing like that happens in North America where you know big companies try to run roughshod all over the little guy
2: it's a, new, it's a totally new thing.
1: Well, what's interesting
0: is we, we can't not talk about uh, the what's happening with uh, U.S. Uh, ISPs in terms of how they handle customer data. Now, my first question is, are the laws in Canada different from the laws in the US, U.S. with respect to how... Um, they protect or not protect uh, your data as it travels through an ISP. Can the ISPs in Canada sell that data without your permission, as is now the case in the u s
2: They cannot so in Canada, we actually we grappled with this issue starting in two thousand thirteen. Um, what happened was is that one of those large telecommunication giants I was talking to you about before they were selling uh, well, they weren 't selling, but they were accessing people 's data like they were they were collecting it in. They were saving it. They were using it to give targeted ads. Mm-hmm. Um, they called it their relevant ads program. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they they got busted. A lot of people complained. Um, the Privacy Commissioner of Canada was brought in to investigate. Privacy Commissioner investigated. And they determined that they were in violation of our Privacy Act. Um so well, not our Privacy Act. Sorry, it's something called PIPEDA. It's the it's the Personal Information and Protection of Electronic Documents Act. Hmm. It's a very long name, yet, but um, yet, that's, yet another that's reason the legislation why we should you. be
1: considering relocating to Canada.
0: Well, I was. I, w- I love. Canada's awesome. I was never considering le- relocating there. Jeff, that's it's your prerogative. Yeah.
2: It's cold. We still have snow.
0: Yeah. Just coming from Orlando, Canada was not weather wise on my list of places to relocate to, just solely based on weather.
2: I think that I two feet of snow outside right now.
0: Wow. wow. So now, um, and I want to ask you, in, uh, what I've heard some. Uh, very smart com- Some of the smart commentary I've heard on this uh, case as it's unraveling in the U.S. is that now that the U.S. federal government has said, Oh, ISPs can sell your data and share it with whoever they want, doesn't matter, that now <clears throat> the individual U.S. states will pass legislation that will, of course, as it sometimes is in the U.S., varying degrees of definitions of how ISPs can and cannot share your data that that will somehow force the hand of the U.S. government to flip this law back or just make it so cumbersome for ISPs to collect such data without violating state law that they'll stop doing that. Does Canada have the same situation? Can the states enact laws similar to where the U.S. has?
2: Well, so our provinces can enact their own privacy legislation, mm-hmm. but as far as the legislation that applies to these companies, so these telecommunications companies, uh, it's... It's all federal, mm-hmm. so we we and we have that luxury, right? I mean, our our federal government the powers are significantly more extensive, so they have the ability to pass legislation that's that sweeps across the board and that covers everybody,
1: right? And and you actually have a functioning federal government, it's just, it's
0: <laughs>
2: arguably we do, or Jeff, perhaps relatively, we're,
0: we're trying to stay out of politics. Are Jeff. we staying out of
2: politics? <laughs>
1: Um, so uh, I'm I'm gonna have you convinced to move to Canada by the end of the segment. Sure.
0: Uh, you can interval.
2: have an igloo right next to mine.
1: That's right. <laughs> uh,
0: so Anna, do you have um, like thoughts and opinions on how um, you think we as consumers should proceed, or how the states could influence the the recent ruling in the U.S.?
2: Well, I mean, ultimately, the, the the problem with expecting the states to come in, and I mean, obviously, I'm I'm a Canadian lawyer, but I have a pretty good idea of how things work down there, and you having the states handle things means that you have this, like you said, a patchwork of legislation across mm. the board. Uh, you're hoping that the the ISPs are going to, because they have to adhere with some of the rules put in place by a more stringent, more privacy minded state, that they should just, you know, adhere. They should just apply that across the board. But that's not necessarily going to be the case. I, ultimately, I think that the responsibility is going to rest on consumers and that consumers are going to have to make sure that you know they know what's happening to their data. Do I think that that's wise? No, because to be honest with you, consumers don't have the knowledge to protect themselves. They just don't. Well, just
1: to clarify for our listening and viewing audience um, and make sure I'm getting it right for that matter, is it right to infer, infer in, in most cases, federal law, uh, is is tighter more stringent than state or provincial law that you know the higher up you go in the food chain you know, you, you expect to have tighter controls and not the opposite because it almost sounds like with the with what 's going on now in the u s that if there 's going to be any kind of control at all it 's going to be at the state level
2: well it 's not necessarily more stringent at the state level I mean it, it depends on the wording of the legislation. So if I mean, for example, in in Canada, um, Alberta had until recently had some of the most stringent privacy legislation on the books. It was great. And they still have that on the books. It's just now our federal government has has caught up to that legislation. So whereas before they weren't so stringent, now they have kind of caught up and realized, well, hey, maybe we should get on board with this. People seem to like it. It seems to be protecting our citizens. So we should also adopt some of these measures, and they've done that.
1: So I've had customers over the years, that, and I'm not going to have the exhaustive list, but I know state of California had specific data privacy or similar type laws that customers that I had over the years were concerned about. Massachusetts, I, I think, mm-hmm. also yep. is another state that had laws where basically if you were a company in the U.S. and doing business in you know most, if not all, the 50 states – you had to worry about these couple states, and, and you know they, they generally would uh, you know meet whatever threshold or whatever level of expectation for one or two states, and and just apply it across the board. Is is that a similar way it's done in, in Canada? Is that the way you think it should be done?
2: Well, I think that's probably best practice. I mean, think about think about the money you have to spend on lawyers, and lawyers are not cheap, right? So think about the money you have to spend on lawyers to make sure that you adhere to every single state's regime, but only when you're practicing in or when you're practicing business in that state, right? So I mean, you you come up against it's a pra, it's a practical limitation, gotcha. in in that sense, and that you and then you have to not only adapt your legal and how you're acting but also potentially the product that you're offering and the information you're collecting. You have to train different staff on what information they can collect, what information they can't collect. Like the practical limitations are certainly there. So you may see that where state where one state or perhaps several states brings in a bunch of really stringent laws that companies will just decide, hey, we don't want to take on the extra cost. We're just going to adhere with the most stringent, and go with that. But it may also be that they meet you somewhere in the middle, right?
0: Or it could be they just don't do business in that state any longer. That's right. Now, yeah, it depends, we've seen it depends that a on lot the size of-, of
2: the market, right? Usually, yes. I mean, California is your largest market. So, as far as I know, so if, if California enacts legislation, it's more likely that that's going to be the legislation that companies who are collecting or retaining information right. adhere to. But it might be that there's somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Where companies decide we're We're not going to go any farther.
0: It depends on the product or service too, right? I mean, due to gun laws, I've seen, um, you know, uh, companies that make uh, products for the gun industry pull out of a state entirely, right? Um, I've also been involved in the cigar industry, right? And speaking to your point, like California is a big state with a lot of people. So mostly they don't ignore that state, um, but they do have to adhere to, uh, to all of the law. So it's very interesting. I want to talk about some, some federal law that um, my friends and I have talked about for a long time in security, and it, it's become a, a hot on issue today. And that's when you are traveling internationally and come into this country and the what rights you have for your digital devices and whether or not uh. those can be search. Oh, she's groaning already. <laughs> she's like, oh no. <laughs> oh no." I'm more than happy to hear how it works in Canada. Um, Yet another
1: it, reason to move to Canada.
0: But it's the I same line another. of questioning, right? As, so if I uh, w- were traveling outside the US as a US citizen and I were to come back and use that as an example, do nobody wants to be the, the test case is, is the answer that I get, right? Yes, my phone is encrypted. Do I have to decrypt and unlock my phone to let someone search my phone? Do I have to do the same for my laptop? Are those the mm-hmm. same? And, and what are my rights? And what is your opinion on the U.S. law? And then how does it work in Canada?
2: So it, it depends on whether you're a citizen of that country mm-hmm. you're trying to get into or not, right? Uh, so as a U.S. citizen entering into the U.S., just like a Canadian citizen entering into Canada, uh, you have the rights of that country. You, you do. Um, so you have certain protections, so you're, you're lucky, you're lucky on that front if you're going back into the U.S. Um, now when I go back into the U.S., or if I, if I'm traveling down, I travel to the U.S. a lot. So if I'm traveling down to see you guys, um, and they ask me to, you know, unlock my phone, if I say no, then I'm simply denied entry. Right. So, so they, so there's, there's a direct enforcement mechanism where they say, give us your password and you say no. And they say, okay, well, we're going to detain you and you're in trouble. Um, But then there's an indirect enforcement mechanism where you can be denied entry simply because you refused to comply with an order. So now the issue is that in Canada, Mm -hmm. if you refuse to comply with an order from a border guard, then you are subject to jail time, just like in the U.S. So potentially, yes. And it seems like the trend is certainly toward if you refuse to unlock your phone, then you're going to be detained. And you're going to be charged with obstructing a border guard.
1: Well, I've known people that have benign, been denied entry into Canada for something as benign as, say, mm, was going to videotape a conference.
0: <laughs> it was inevitable yes. the conversation was going to it go. Was, yes, and it's it funny, was,
2: yeah.
0: in talking with my friends about this uh, yesterday and the day before, we inevitably segued into – uh, a lot of us, myself personally, I haven't traveled to Canada for business amazingly enough uh, yet, I think ever, um, not by by choice, just by circumstance. But I know Larry, uh, who's joined us now, welcome Larry to the show. Hey, Larry. Uh, Hi. And Hi. several Hi, Larry. others uh, you know, in our community that are traveling to Canada to go to a security conference to perhaps provide security services, speak at a conference, videotape a conference – uh, based on the language that you use, have either been denied entry or detained for some period of time? Could you, uh, and perhaps elaborate on uh, those laws and regulations uh, when people from outside of Canada are traveling inside to do business?
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, now the issue is, is that Jeff, Jeff's referring to a specific incident, and that incident was more about work. Right? This is about this is about. Do you have a work visa? Are you coming to Canada to work to, to take a Canadian's job right. um, that 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 was the issue there and you' and I mean if you're traveling here for business you are permitted to travel across the border as long as you know you're you're either with a company and you're, you're pre-cleared you have a TN visa or you you know you're, you're coming up just to visit friends you can also do that but the issue is is that when it becomes this weird gray area where you're coming up and you declare at the time of entry that you are going to be working, um, but you don't have that visa. You don't have that visa in place, so you haven't filled out the appropriate paperwork. Then they get, for lack of a better word, a little sketched out, and they get worried that you're going to stay in the country and start working and taking the job of a Canadian, uh, as they say. So they, they deny entry.
0: Yeah, and it's Uh, further. Go ahead, Larry. It's further gray, but uh, yeah.
3: Yeah, yeah. I I have a great story about that. Uh, I had a friend that was uh, uh, driving across the border many years ago uh, to uh, perform um, at a friend's Canada Day celebration for free. And when stopped at the border, uh, he had all of his gear in his car. And when stopped at the border, was uh, questioned. um, Do you know of any Canadian that could do your job? And his response was, I know of no Canadian dumb enough to do my job. <laughs> oh, okay. he would, Wrong he, answer. He's, yeah, no, no. That yeah. was well. I, I would agree. That's a really great job. That you know, all the Coma- Canadians are smarter than he is to do that job. Um, but he's a he's a circus sideshow performer, as in he nails nails into his skull and lies on yeah. a ba- bed of nails and and that type of stuff. So I can get where he was saying. You know, I know Canadian. I know no Canadian's stupid enough to do my job. Um, and even still, he was denied <laughs> denied entry.
2: Well, because even if even if you're, the work you're doing is for free, you're still caught, right? You still have yep. to have a visa to do that work. Yep. And and the problem with your friend is that he kind of poked the beast. Yeah. And they have they have so much discretion, so much discretion yeah. that you they know do. for for the pay level and the level of education required to become a border guard, they have a ridiculous amount of discretion. yeah.
3: Yeah, my, my, my story there was I was going to uh going to Teacher Sands and uh I was uh detained at immigration there because I was there for work and uh it, it had been multiple trips for me and obviously that that throws a flag that it had been multiple trips and I was there gonna be there for six days uh and I did not have a work visa. Um Various folks had informed me that I didn't require one, uh, and they were going to turn me around at the border. Uh, but the the immigration official um, and the border crossing guards, you know, went bend over backwards to to allow me to come into the country. Um, they said I could teach for five days as a paid, uh, professionally paid speaker, but I could not teach the sixth day. Interesting. Okay. So okay. so we I said great. I have a plan to teach this class in 5 days. Let's do it.
0: <laughs>
3: Here's the plan, which I did have a plan because mm-hmm. you know we teach uh, we teach other uh, agencies in 5 days instead of 6. I said great. We can do that. Here you go.
1: It's good. You saved the day. So you know, my story is opposite. I mean, I I worked with a guy one time that we were sending up to a Canadian well, the Canadian arm of an american company i don 't know if that makes a difference, and he was turned away because he said yeah i 'm going to do some pen testing security testing, and they turned him away but i 've been to canada canada i 've been overseas many times, and uh, i 've never had any issues uh getting in, and i you know i I have gone not necessarily knowing ahead of time what I should say or not say or what I should have in terms of visas. I just kind of bumble my way through. Yeah, I'm visiting a company for a couple of days. I'm going to advise them or whatever. I'm attending a conference. I think the last time I was up there, I said I was speaking at a conference, the same conference where our friend got turned away.
2: Mm.
1: And uh, somehow I got in. Maybe it's I have an honest face.
2: <laughs> it must be. It must be. Like I said, there's a lot of discretion. Right. But I mean, it's certainly, it's, it's an issue and people feel very vulnerable at the border. And that's why I, whenever, whenever, whenever people get me on the phone, it's, you know, and especially security guys, because you guys, you travel so much that, and you travel across border a lot and it's, it seems very arbitrary. The, the discretion they have, the, the rules are constantly changing because a lot of it is policy based. So it's, it's so fluid and it's extremely frustrating. It's extremely frustrating for people who travel across the border all the time. Cause you never know. You never know when you're going to get dinged.
0: We know you now, Anna, so we can just name drop. We can be well, we know, I know Anna. So <laughs> I don't know if
2: that's a good that's, idea. I'm a little that's bit when of a political center.
0: Yeah. <laughs> that's probably the equivalent of going, I want my lawyer, right? <laughs>
1: So I had sort of another international-related question, sort of going back to our previous topic. But I was just wondering, in terms of the hierarchy from state or province up to federal law and, and what's more stringent, how does then now sort of the, the the new law that's over in the EU that everybody seems to be panicked about, is mm-hmm. it the G, GDPR? I don't even know what it stands for. It's,
2: it stands for General Data Protection Regulation uh so generally uh, yeah. probably freaking
1: is. out every I've been hearing
0: this term a lot lately yeah. and actually welcoming welcoming on a new sponsor that is specifically uh addressing this the compliance issue so I I'm uh very excited to hear more about it
2: well, basically, do you just want kind of a general overview of the sure, thing? Sure.
0: That'd be fantastic. Okay. Yes. All right. Yes. So,
2: so what it, what it is, is it's, it's new regulations put in by the EU that replace a directive. And that distinction is important, um, because it means that they don't actually, it's, it's already active. Well, it will be rather when, it, when the time comes for it to be active. It doesn't have to be voted in by states. So it's already going to be active automatically. Uh, so it's not like, uh, EU states can choose to take it on. It's they're basically it's they're being force fed this. So what it is, is it the scheme for ensuring that the movement of data across borders is regulated to ensure that this privacy protections across the EU are the same? Um, that, that's basically it. it's actually although it has a lot of very stringent um, requirements for for companies that the reason for the change and for the regulation coming in is to protect consumers.
1: So I can, I can see that causing some heartache for some companies, especially ISPs that operate internationally where the U S has just said, have at it. You can, you can do what you want with the, you know, personal information for your subscribers until you hit the European borders. Or what if you have European customers, you know, what are they? What do you foresee as being the the challenges there?
2: Well, you're you're talking about a jurisdictional jumble right there, right? Because you're talking about data moving from the U.S. between the U.S. and the EU. Uh, so this only applies to companies who provide services to EU residents. Now, okay.
1: hmm. that's that's I've, interesting. I've had a few customers like that. Go ahead. Mm-hmm.
2: So, but in that we're not sure if they're going to be able to enforce it against US ISPs if they're not doing actually doing business or have businesses based in the EU. So that's I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure how they're dealing with that. I'd have to wait and see after it actually comes into force in 2018. I think it's May 2018 when it actually comes in. So we'll have to wait for that, but if you are a company doing business in the EU and you are providing this services or or whatever to to EU residents then you're caught by these by these regulations which are actually quite stringent and their their definition of what personal information is is broader than even here in canada it includes so for example here in canada your personal information is uh anything that is you know can, could identify you so uh race age uh, sexual orientation religious affiliation political affiliation anything like that but it doesn't include your ip address so but the the new regulation in the EU, it does include your IP address. Um, They have some other really interesting provisions also that, that we don't have in Canada, which I I actually on reading the the documents themselves, I found very interesting. Um, They provide that people can uh, anonymize data and that it, the regulations don't apply to that data once it's anonymized, um, which doesn't even come into effect in Canada. Now off the books, it does. So here in Canada, you can, as long as the information is sufficiently anonymized and none of us are sure what that means. It's on a case by case basis and it hasn't really been litigated. Um, but as long as the information has been anonymized, it can't identify you. So it's not personal information anymore and they can do whatever they want with it. So technically, ISPs in Canada can sell anonymous, anonymized information.
0: Which provided, so- well, provided they keep it anonymous. My conversation with Doug that's White, right. we were talking about the IP address issue. And I was like, well, what if like I'm keeping my DNS data separate and they're just looking at my IP address? He's like, no, dude, they they know where your IP address is going and they know it belongs to you and they can totally sell that data. Like me personally, Paul Sidorian, tied to uh, an IP address. So I think that's what the... Uh, European uh, legislation is is aiming to protect as well, because from an ISP's perspective, like your IP address and IP address at a given time is, is you.
2: That's right. That's right. And I mean, any, and that's, that's information that would tend to identify you as you well know, right? I mean, your IP address, that's, that's, you know, you basically, Right. right? So, but in, in Canada, when we went through this this thing with the ISPs getting in trouble because they were using this relevant ads program where they tracked your online your online activity and used it to target you as far as ads as far as advertising was concerned um they're not allowed to do that because what they were doing is they were doing this on an opt out basis so uh, if you were a subscriber to them in order to not have your information collected and retained, you had to opt out, specifically say, no, Bell, I don't want you to collect my information. I don't want you to collect it. I don't want you to target ads at me. Um, whereas they, they got in trouble because of that provision. Now it's an opt-in. Um and I, I have reservations about that as well because I don't think that they're doing anything to inform consumers about what that actually means.
0: Do you get a uh, discount if you opt in? That's a big debate well, no, here in the U.S. now.
2: You know what? I, and I think I think that's a really interesting idea. But I still think there's the same problems because they don't educate consumers. You should see it. What they have on their website is this page where they say, hey, you can opt into this program We'll only target the ads you want, and you won't have to see all those ads you don't want to see. They're inconvenient. Click on this. It's for convenience. Like, it's really gross. It's really gross what they're doing. But anyway, in the eve, this new regulation, and this is where I'm getting back to it, this new regulation is it requires you to opt in. So if an ISP wants to collect that information just to collect it, not only retain it and sell it and do whatever they want with it, just to collect it, they, you have to opt in. You have to explicitly say, yes, it is okay for you to collect this information. And that includes your IP address, like to retain it, to connect it with your name. So I, I think it's good. And to be honest with you, it has more teeth than the privacy legislation in Canada. So it's not a bad thing. It, it, although I think that the compliance issue, will, the cost will be significant, mm. right? Because you have to adhere to some pretty stringent requirements.
0: Do you think it will uh, stop people from doing business, certain types of business in the EU?
2: Well, I mean, the EU is—it's a large market. I mean, you, you guys—you guys aren't the largest market in the world. The EU is a very large market, and I think that although the cost will be higher, I think it will be worth it for companies. In the end. Says yeah. Says the lawyer, like probably can the, get paid.
1: Sorry, so, go ahead, Jeff. It sounds like with the buy-in, at least the consumer has some perception of their they're getting something for their information. Like I can imagine there'll be some sort of incentive whether it's a discount or they get, you know, the customized coupons or only mm-hmm. the ads they care about that type of thing. So it's if nothing else it's the illusion that they're getting something in exchange for their personal
2: information but i have i have I actually have a really big problem with it though, because insurance companies
0: mm-hmm.
2: are doing the same thing with genetic data, and I know that the, I know that the issues are different, but it's about the erosion of the expectation of or well the erosion of the, of your bubble, basically like your private bubble this is me this is the amount of privacy that I expect. When it's you, the
1: erosion when, of the illusion of the bubble. Yeah. <laughs> yes, fair <laughs> enough, fair enough. I'll,
2: I'll give you that. But, I mean, when, when, you, when you incentivize consumers, and, I mean, money money talks, right? Even for people who don't have a lot of money, like your, your average consumer right, you know, relative to these companies who are offering these discounts, um, right. it, people are going to want those discounts. Are they going to fully, uh, you know, critically assess whether or not the cost of that discount is significantly higher than the actual discount itself. Uh, I don't think so. I really don't. And it's not that I don't respect people or I think they're dummies. It's just that consumers are reactive mm. and they click, you know, they click when they, when they probably shouldn't, they sign when they don't read things. So, I mean, when, for example, when consumers agree to give up their genetic information for a break on their insurance, they don't realize that that one time give uh, means that their insurance company can continue to you know, use that information possibly against them, but also against other people because you can they use that information to you know, increase insurance rates for people who perhaps don't provide that information.
1: I,
0: I completely agree. I, I don't think that uh, consumers as a whole, regardless of the country, understand the ramifications of what giving up some of your privacy actually means sure it might mean that uh i was talking to someone the other day and she was like yeah i got a cell phone and she's like you know it was a cheap phone a cheap plan and yeah i got ads on it but you know i didn't pay a lot of money for it but what if that costs you more money down the road and some you know your data is being used in some other way and your insurance and somewhere else is going up because they're collecting more information about you
2: and that's the risk
1: yep that's risk management
0: jeff larry more questions
1: uh for anna hey uh well this is open closure. season anna, anna and i met like what maybe a year and a half ago at mm-hmm. uh, B sides cape breton and then we were together nice. again last spring at uh, atlantic security conference and i think anna is going to be back again this year can you so tell happy. us what you're going to be talking about what's what's the latest thing you're into right now <sighs>
2: So uh, among other things, I mean, I'm going to be talking about uh, the regulatory mechanisms that countries, nation states are taking to criminalize encryption. That is the newest talk. Um, And basically, I'm talking very generally on a pretty high level about the legal mechanisms by which uh, countries can make sure that there's either a, a government instituted backdoor Or that they're provided through without judicial oversight with encryption keys that companies are required to retain for that purpose.
0: Well I I think it's a it's a hot topic, certainly here in the US with what we were talking about happening with some of the laws, I've been looking into VPN services that advertise that they don't share any of their data that they anonymize all of their data, and these services are becoming more and more popular. But at what point, given your talk, right, does Mm -hmm. that become frowned upon now by the government that we're basically cheating the system, right? By using (laughs) encryption, we're able to cheat the system uh, and be anonymous on on the internet. And and how much at risk are we? Like, where in the future do you see that happening, and do you see that panning out in any particular way?
2: I think there's a significant risk of governments instituting that there's, there's some kind of backdoor or that they're given these encryption keys or that the encryption keys are kept by companies for use by the government later on. Um, and I'm saying the government, uh, but I mean, this, this could be anywhere from, you know, security agencies to, you know, other law enforcement branches. Um, but it could also, it could also be the tax man, right? I mean, it could be, it could be any branch of government, um, but the, I, th- I think that it's, it's more likely than not that this will happen. And I'll tell you why. Governments do not like that they cannot access your information. The anonymous citizen is the most dangerous element in a society to, to a nation state. So for citizens to be able to be completely anonymous and to, to act as an anonymous entity, um, in an increasingly large world, right? The, the world that is in the internet for people. Um, that's that's a threat to states. And it's not just a threat to them because these people will do us harm. I mean, that's, that's the angle that governments are taking, right? We're talking, you know, I often say, you know, because terrorism, et cetera, that's the reason we're doing this. But I mean, it's also about tax evasion. It's also about... Uh, people accessing content that the government doesn't think that they should. Uh, It's about copyright infringement. And that's really one of the big ones. And you'll notice that here in Canada and also down in the U.S., some of the biggest proponents of these backdoors that will be provided to the government are the large copyright holders and the telecommunications companies because they want to be able to enforce these rights that they have that are very profitable for them. Well, I, now, sound a little, I sound a little bit like a conspiracy yeah, theorist. Yeah, no,
0: you're scaring but- me now, and You're scaring me because it, it's, bringing, it's bringing forth thoughts of um, the Aaron Schwartz of the world, uh, Bradley Manning's, the WikiLeaks, and largely their mission uh, for a lot of those cases that we've seen in that light is to give people uh, anonymity is to, um, you know, have information be free, you know, whether that you think it should be copyrighted or secret or not. Uh, and there's varying degrees of that in, in all of those cases for certain. Um, but, you know, all of those cases are, are happening now and have happened very recently. So I think you're, you're right on point with that. And I'm scared now. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I'm sorry to scare you. <laughs> that is part of my like- job, you know. No, it's good
3: I, I, i'm all, i'm i'm also scared because i actually heard an actual lawyer stop and say because terrorism <laughs> i like it was you know like because reasons mm.
2: yeah <laughs> but that's the that's the motivation that's the motivation behind a lot of this stuff people are running scared they do whatever their government says
0: yeah it, but what's scary for me is that you it, it's almost like i I'm, the government is expecting that i'm going to give up some of my security and privacy so that they can have control, right? And it, a great example of this is I, I recently lost my phone. And it's interesting how my friends and family who are not in technology or security were were kind of like freaking out. They were like, well, like, what if someone takes your data? I'm like, yeah, pretty much have to be a government agency because mm-hmm. the phone was encrypted, the text messages were encrypted with signal, I remotely wiped it, I remotely locked it. Uh, now I, I do plan to follow up with some of my, uh, forensics friends in the mobile space to figure out exactly on that version of Android, just how sophisticated you have to be to break, uh, the encryption or bypass the fingerprint reader Mm -hmm. or the, the swipe code. But, um, you know, and I, I like that level of protection, but the fact that it could be compromised because terrorism, as you put it, is Mm -hmm. that, that's the frightening part for me.
2: Yeah. Well, I think it's a real possibility. I really do. And I mean, it's, it's happening even up here, right? I mean, you, people often have this perception of Canada where we're all kind of laid back and, you know, we don't really get all worked up about these things, but we, we do. I mean, we've passed some of the most concerning government surveillance legislation in the past few years that I've, I think I've ever seen, you know? Um, it's called Bill C-51 is how we refer to it now, but it's, it's essentially, it essentially provides that, um, you know, government government agencies can can spy on, on Canadians um, without any form of judicial oversight. Um, and yeah, we've had that problem too.
0: There. We relate to that problem. <laughs> it's yeah. certainly yeah. been there. <laughs>
2: we both we share this issue.
0: Yes, for sure.
1: I I sort of have a little bit of a different concern or take on this because you know the idea of accessing consumer data is not a new idea. Uh, You know, recently in the news, not to get political, there's been some issue with the possibility of wiretapping. You know, wiretapping has been around for a long time. And basically when cell phones first became popular, you know, it was very common. and, And I had ISPs as customers and they would keep all the, they called it metadata, I believe, at the time. But, you know, basically all the details of phone conversations, you know, who called who for how long and when and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. and they would escrow all that information and if there was a warrant a court order they would turn that over to law enforcement so you know part of the recent discussions i've always con- been kind of scratching my head because the the capability has been there for a long time and it's been fairly routine mm-hmm. is it easier now is it faster now does encryption throw everybody for a loop yes but um yeah, you know, when I was still at NSA 20-some years ago, we were trying to promote the idea of key escrow, where we'd have that kind of emergency master key, but the government wouldn't hold it, it would hold it or them. It would be escrowed by a trusted third party. Now, mm-hmm. you fast forward 20 years, and you've got the Googles and the Facebooks and the Twitters and all the social media that are capturing so much information about us anyway, and all the more now that the law has been changed. Um you know, it seems like for many years there's been more of an inherent trust for these large providers and companies to protect us, or even like the VPNs. I mean, depending on mm. where the encryption happens, at some point there's a demarcation, and if it's your trusted VPN provider, how do you know if you're trusting them? Because they mm. possibly have access to your data still anyway, and how do you know they're not going to flip it for the for the right p- price or for the for the right political legal Pressure being applied to them.
2: Well, I mean, on on that note, I mean, how then? There's the practical limitation of the difficulty in finding out that this is happening. So the only reason that up, up here when the, we had the the thing with the relevant ads program, the only reason. That, that actually came to light wasn't that, uh, you know, it would, they, there was this huge investigation and then the privacy commissioner got involved. It was that somebody read the fine print and realized what? What is this? Uh, and made the complaint. And they were very public about it. And that's the only reason that it was actually investigated. But if you have a, if you have a, a private company down in the States and they're allowed to collect that information mm-hmm. or they're, or they're allowed to represent themselves as being like, for example, a VPN as protecting information. Um, but they, like you said, they have to hold it at some point. Then how do you, how can you find out? Right. These are private companies and you, you'd have to actually either make the complaint to a government agency um. And then they'd make the determination of whether or not they wanted to take it forward, or you'd have to sue them.
1: Good it's, luck sa- with that. It's, it's sounding like the equivalent to all the big debate over gun control law, where you know, needless scrutiny and, and regulation is going to be applied to law abiding citizens that sort of voluntarily apply, although they might do it kicking and screaming, where the real bad guys are going to still have access to what they want to have access to and so on and so forth. I mean, do you see an equivalent here?
2: Um well, if if you're asking me if the picture is all doom and gloom, which I think is the crux of your question. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> to to be honest with you, I mean our perception of privacy has changed so much even just in the past 5 or 10 years that really do people actually know what privacy is anymore. I'm not sure that they do. I think that if you ask them the easy question of, well, if somebody walks into your room and you're in the middle of changing, uh, do you feel like your privacy has been violated? Well, yeah, but, you know, do you feel like your privacy has been violated when, you know, somebody takes your entire browsing history, sells it to another company, and that company uses it to, you know, present ads to you that are relevant uh now that sounds like kind of a, that sounds it's innocuous. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose so, but I mean the thing is is that like I used the word erosion earlier. And that's that's the way I really feel. I feel that's a very appropriate word. I think that it's like it's like death by a thousand paper cuts is what's mm-hmm. going on.
0: <clears throat> um I just if no one has any more questions for Anna, I have our no famous, food. infamous, I guess you should say. Uh, I should say five questions.
2: Oh, God. Okay.
0: (laughs) All right. Anna, are you ready to play five questions with Security Week? Yes. All right. Three words to describe yourself.
2: Uh, Energetic, crazy, cat lady. That's hyphenated.
0: If you were a serial killer, what would be your weapon of choice?
2: Ooh, poison.
0: If you wrote a book about yourself, what would the title be?
2: The most patient woman in the world.
0: In the popular game of ask grabby grabby, do you prefer to go first or second? Like
1: second. <laughs> we have to clarify U.S. rules, not Canadian. Not
0: Canadian rules, right? Oh, okay. Those are different. All right,
2: first, first. Then, okay.
1: First.
0: Choose two celebrities to be your parents.
3: Alive, dead, oh living, or otherwise.
2: Oh Canadian or
0: non-Canadian. <laughs> but we but we we'll, we won't have heard of the Canadian.
2: This is this is ter- Liza Minnelli. And Rod Stewart.
0: Very nice. Very nice.
2: Interesting.
0: Wow. All right. So, Anna, uh, the conference that you're speaking uh, at is Atlantic Security Conference. Where is that being held and when?
2: It's being held in Halifax. And it is the 20th. Now, hold on. They're doing a training day, but it's like the 28th. Of April? Of April.
0: Excellent. Well, I hope uh, everyone attends your talk uh, that is going to that conference.
1: I know if I were going there, I would attend your talk. So. Paul, uh, one reason not to go to Canada is their, their official shot is only an ounce. Just so I you. see. But they
0: have well, lots of
3: Tim Hortons.
2: I think in the
1: States. <laughs> Tim Hortons
0: in, in hockey. So they do we have do Tim in hockey. hockey. They
2: do. And there will still be snow on the ground, so you could probably go skiing.
0: There you go. Well, Anna, thank you very much for appearing on Security Weekly. Thank you for having me. We'll be right back. Onapsis is the leading provider of solutions to protect ERP systems from cyber attacks. Customers can secure their SAP and Oracle business-critical platforms from espionage, sabotage, and financial fraud risks. Visit them on the web at onapsis.com. Signal Sciences is the industry's first web protection platform that works in any cloud, any container, any platform as a service, and any modern application architecture. The Signal Sciences web protection platform can be deployed in next-generation WAF, RASP, or reverse proxy modes, giving customers ultimate flexibility. Flexibility and coverage. Protect your web applications with Signal Sciences Web Protection Platform. Signal Sciences, securing code and connecting teams. For more information, check them out at signalsciences.com forward slash ESW endgame automates the hunt for both known and never before seen adversaries in enterprise networks built on unique knowledge on the adversary's tools techniques and tactics Endgame's centrally managed agent prevents detects and responds to advanced adversaries in the earliest stages of the kill chain without prior knowledge endgame automate the hunt Welcome back, everyone. A quick announcement. ITPro.TV's courses now include ITIL Managing the Life Cycle and Microsoft Hello for Business. Premium annual memberships include all video content as well as access to virtual labs and Q&A forums. You'd pay normally $85.70 a month or $857 a year, but we have a special offer for our listeners. For a limited time only, get 50% off a monthly membership for the lifetime of your active subscription, itpro.tv forward slash Security Weekly. What's the discount code for this show? Is it SW fifty? It's SW fifty. SW fifty is the discount code. That's awesome. Uh, from our friends at IT Pro TV, which very quickly, speaking of uh, travel, Jeff's going to give uh, some awesome insights into IBM's Interconnect Conference. Um, <clears throat> Riley uh, of our production staff and Sam, our operations manager, and myself, and several other characters from the security community, got on a bus and visited the IT Pro TV studios. And there, it is just awesome, awesome. Hilarity ensued. There was a lot of hilarity. There was a lot of shenanigans. But uh, their studio is just—I mean, as much as they talked it up, it lived up to my expectations and exceeded my expectations um i I was impressed by some of the the nerdier details like when we walked into their studio they've got numerous sets um with a control center in the middle and immediately the thing i noticed was i'm like i don't see any cables run everywhere i was impressed with the, the the planning uh and design uh of their studio uh their set design was was amazing uh, their technology was amazing, and they're just in a, an amazing company. I and mean, it was very warm welcoming uh, for the, some of us in the security community to meet up with uh, the fine folks at IT Pro TV. So that was a lot of fun.
3: So new set design coming, Paul.
0: Yeah, it was. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you would have appreciated. I wish you could have been there. You'd have appreciated some of the things they have uh, on set. They actually have a, a like a fake elevator. Uh, on set that we were instantly designing like arduinos and raspberry Pis to make it look even more realistic and designing segments i'm like i totally have a podcast like five minutes from the elevator weekly uh, i would just like broadcast from the elevator yeah so was some cool stuff
1: so do they have that so you can do an elevator pitch you could yes and
0: i would do the elevator pitch weekly maybe multiple shows from the elevator jeff yeah
1: i like it and uh, true, true, true confessions, Paul, how many, how many cables are you sitting over on top of right this second? Quite a few. Quite a few. <laughs> yep. More than a dozen
0: surround me right now on the floor. Yep.
1: Don't spill any of that
0: uh, lube behind you. That's, well, not so much spilling on the cables as it is just wear and tear. Like they just wear out from being walked on and all that stuff. So we're working on it. Cool. So Jeff, tell us about uh, this. Was a, a conference was in uh, Las Vegas, IBM Interconnect yep. 2017, and we they actually invited us, which is pretty awesome, actually.
1: It is pretty awesome. You know, obviously IBM's been around for a long time, and uh, I think I think as a company they got started. Uh, I should have this memorized. You know, back in the 30s, I think it was. Wow, was it? That? Um, and, you know, they're not quite as old as HP or maybe mm-hmm. they're a little bit – actually, I think they go back further. I think they go back to the teens. And, uh, you know, when I far, first started out consulting 20-some-odd years ago in the private sector, as a consultant, we were always competing against other consulting companies. And the big, the big boys were uh, companies like IBM, uh, you know, the, the big five at the time, accounting firms. But mm-hmm. there was a saying – uh, back then, and I think it still pretty much holds true today, nobody ever got fired mm-hmm. for hiring IBM. Did they make typewriters back in the day? They did. I made it through college on an IBM Selectric 2 typewriter. That's it funny. A friend, of had a, type,
0: a friend of mine had a typewriter repair business and, and got to a point and then sold it when, when computers started becoming popular. And it actually Smart survived writer. for quite a while after that as well. But he's like, I got, I got out of that stuff uh, when there was this thing called a computer, so...
1: Well, yeah. I mean, well, m- much like HP, you know, there's this sort of history what the company is known for. Right. My earliest memory of IBM is the electric typewriter. And I think my mom got one surplus. She worked for the government and they were selling off old ones and she picked one up for, I don't know, 10, 20 bucks. And I got to take it to, to college. But I wrote all my term papers on this electric typewriter and I loaned it out. I should have. I should have charged people, but I didn't. But a mm. lot of people used my typewriter because it wasn't common in the early to mid '80s to ha- even have an electric typewriter. Right. But fast forward a few years, and you—I don't know—you you might be a little bit too young, but you know, the first personal computers—the the big splash was made by the IBM PC, the mm-hmm. IBM desktop, and they were everywhere. I had them. I had them in the government, and. Uh, And, you know, their partnership with Microsoft and and DOS at the time is kind of what launched Microsoft. Mm -hmm. So, you know, IBM has a reputation for uh, being innovative. And I actually uh, uh, got in trouble one time many years ago because I I was working for a company and we had to, you know, doing PCI work. So we had to tour their data center, which happened to be hosted by IBM. And so I'm in Boulder, Colorado going through their data center and we're getting the the dog and pony show from the IBM you know, site manager, whoever he was. And we're just walking around the hallways and looking through windows at the big operation centers and all the racks and stuff like that. They wouldn't let us in, but they had windows. And I just made some comment, and this was probably 10 years ago at this point, that it, I thought it was interesting that uh, as long as IBM had been around – Um, that they'd never changed their uh, color scheme on their logo. And if you remember, IBM used to be sort of a a grayish, white, kind of a battleship gray, just kind of IBM, and that that was kind of their logo. Well, I got in a lot of trouble because the IBM people heard it, and I didn't know it at the time, but IBM cares a, a lot about its brand, and they're very protective of their brand, and so on and so forth. So complaints went up the IBM management chain over to our customer, which bled down to. You know, we were the consultants that had been hired, and I got chewed out for, what did you say about IBM? I said, I thought it was interesting that they were still Battleship Gray as their logo. <clears throat> but so, you know, fast forward to a couple weeks ago and, and going out to the IBM Internet Connect conference, which is basically there's users conference. And if you've ever been to Black Hat, it's in the same facility, Mandalay Bay, and it's kind of like Black Hat. It's got a huge expo. They've got mm-hmm. courses and seminars going on. I mean, they had something like 2,300 talks and seminars going on wow. over the course of five days. So it's huge. It's huge. And, but it's all IBM or IBM partners. I mean, right. the whole expo floor was IBM. So you didn't have a thousand different booths from a different thousand events. Yeah. You had a thousand different business units or partners or you know areas of focus, and it was all IBM.
0: When you think about the technology, Jeff, I'm sure IBM is still big on DV2 and AS400, and is AIX? Are they still selling the AIX brand AI, of, of they, Unix machines? I did machines, see AIX.
1: Yeah. I thought it had gone away, but I did not see an AIX rack. OS three
0: AX. OS three ninety. So they're still big on their their mainframe. The is it the Z yep.
1: platform still? I believe so. I mean, my, my focus was security. They yeah. uh, they have a business unit now, IBM Security, which was spun up, uh, I want to say, in 2011. And, uh, well, you know, it was funny. So I go out there and I'm like, IBM Security, I'm here to learn because I don't really know what they're doing. And I got to go to a lot of presentations and talks and they had a huge, probably 50 foot by 50 foot booth that was just IBM Security. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, gradually, it, I remembered, oh, yeah, IBM. They're, they bought this the company, company. yeah. Yeah, They, mm-hmm. they're, I mean, and I think it started with ISS. Actually, I it think did. it started with, uh, I've got a cheat sheet here, with AppScan. I think AppScan was the first thing that they bought. No, I think it was before.
0: Well, they had uh, NetRanger was their IDS that they bought a long time ago.
1: Right. So, you know, they've bought a lot of technologies, and, and so they, they bought into, like, you know, in the early days of, internet security where there were startup companies that were quickly acquired by larger companies. IBM was one of them. But uh, the biggest one that I remembered was ISS. And so they still have X-Force as a brand. X-Force mm-hmm. was you know, the, the hacker, dev, Oday finding team for ISS back in the day. And they still call their consulting X-Force and they yep. still do pen testing. And in fact, servicing.
0: I think it's uh, Chris Poulin, uh, who I saw at the InfoSec world works for X-Force.
1: Sounds right. The, and the I, guy met that
0: some, I met someone else who was my A for the day at InfoSec World in terms of uh, vendors. Her name was Camilla. Uh, she actually worked at uh, IBM, uh, not at IBM, but for ISS, uh, ISS, pre-getting bought by IBM, which then didn't surprise me that she was my A for the day in explaining, uh, vendor for explaining what problem they solve and what their products do. She was my A for the day. Hi, Camilla. You're awesome. She, we got high fives <laughs> going on. She was my A for the day.
1: Cool. Yeah, so, you know, gradually as the week progressed I realized, oh, uh, you know, they're talking about, you know, this product and that product that used to be such and such a company. So, um, you know, they've obviously gotten very serious. It's a separate business unit, IBM Security. That's you know, they they've embraced the fact that that's a big part of this whole internet security thing. And of course, the the main themes of the whole conference were uh moving to the cloud. Uh, the Internet of Things and uh, machine learning, which is Watson, which is what they call cognitive. So you know those were sort of the overarching themes. I mean, starting from the opening keynote, the, the chairman and, and CEO of, and president of IBM, um, woman named Ginny, um, her last name escapes me right now, but uh, very recognizable, very personable, personable. And very excited about talking about all the great things that IBM's doing, sort of tackling a lot of the problems um, that, you know, of mankind, like, you know, uh, medical research. And, and, uh, I mean, they they even announced a partnership with H&R Block, so Watson now can help you do your taxes, which might not sound like much, but if you have complicated taxes, that's a huge, huge deal. So, you know, they're, you know, they're a big company, uh, trying to solve a lot of the world's problems, make life a whole lot easier. And, you know, they're, they're still very sensitive to the brand, but, you know, part of my experience is like, wow, this is not the battleship gray IBM that I knew 10, 15 years ago. They've really taken to heart that like, like many, uh, companies in this world, um, you know, technology is advancing so fast and, and venturing into different areas, they've realized they need to to change and evolve and and and, and still be innovators and still be ahead of the curve. And, do and I think great they have thing.
0: done that. I mean, even outside of security, um, and the reason I know this is because we used to use them for our live streaming is uh, Ustream. IBM bought uh, Ustream, right. who we used for a long time uh, for our live stream, so… Uh, that was, and they bought uh, Resilient Systems uh, going back into security. Yep. Did you get a chance to catch up with the folks from Resilient Systems? People speak pretty highly of their, their products.
1: I did. Um, I actually uh, used to work with a woman at VeriSign. She was the sales rep for one of my key Boston-based uh, cost- retail customers. Um, and she actually works for Resilient. And I just happened to notice on LinkedIn, you know, maybe a week before I headed out to Vegas, that – uh, you know, oh, wait a minute. She's she's working for IBM now. So I messaged her and said, "Are you going to be out in Vegas?" She goes, "Yeah." I said, "So am I." So we got together, and, and it turns out she's working for Resilient. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah. You know, so I got to talk to her, and she introduced me to some of the Resilient folks. The 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 CEO of Resilient, who's now I guess you know executive VP of Resilient or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know the thing is he gave you know he gave one of the talks that uh, I that I sat in on and even uh, Bruce Schneier I think's the um, the CTO for resilience yeah he was he one was of the there. founders of uh, As an IBM yeah he's, a, yeah he's so he's an IBM advisor now and, and right. uh, you know he gave one of the you know the one of the, the general session talks so uh, yes I did run into resilience I actually ran into um, it was funny because the booth that they had for IBM security was two levels. They had a loft sort of mm-hmm. in one corner. And I had been you know been shown around all the different products and technologies sort of on the main floor, but I was kind of curious, you know, what's upstairs, what's mm-hmm. up there? You know, that hacker mindset, yeah, I want yeah, to find yeah. out what's more. So, yeah, when they weren't looking, I went up the steps, and it turns out that's where the uh, consultants were. That's where the X-Force was. And I started talking to a woman up there and, you know, mentioning that, oh, X-Force, that's old ISS. And she goes, I used to work at ISS. I'm like, wow, you've been here this whole time? She goes, yeah. So she's been, you know, with IBM slash ISS for like 12 years. So we were just talking about old times and what life was like. You know, when ISS was ISS and... and yeah, was
0: it in the... When did the uh, IBM acquire ISS? Was it right in the early 2000s? It was
3: pretty uh, early on, right?
1: Because they... No, it was... I I thought it was earlier, too. It
0: was
3: yeah. actually
1: the end of 2006. So oh, it's, okay. So it's been just over 10 years. Wow. Uh But, yeah, it seems like it's been forever, doesn't it? mm Because... But... Uh, you know, I, I was kind of impressed because I you know, I was like I said, I've been around from the beginning and, and sort of the first wave of security companies that formed like in the mid to late nineties, most of them got sucked up, you know, within eighteen to twenty-four months. You know, Ron Gula's first company, um mm-hmm. uh, you know the Dragon IDS, uh, network security wizards lasted all of eighteen months before they got acquired. The Wheel Group, which was the Big Daddy back mm-hmm. then, they were acquired by Cisco. Yeah, you know, within eighteen months, two years, something like that. Computer Associates, Network Associates, they were sucking up everybody. So, and and what they did in those days was basically they were applying buying companies to get a specific technology, and they sort of cast aside whatever else they acquired because a lot of these companies had consulting groups, and I've always you know sort of had a bias towards consulting, and many consultants were kind of cast aside because these companies required to get a specific technology they've got a firewall they've got an ids they've got an IPS a web app uh,
0: IBM, one of the web app scanning companies that was big in yeah, uh, app two. Yeah. that was like in the 2006 kind of uh time yeah. frame because i remember we had like we're just starting or just started the uh podcast and they were uh big and their founder was very ener- energetic individual i don't remember his name but um and then like instantly they were like swallowed up by ibm and I mean, they still have a great web app scanning uh, platform to this day. Which one, uh, Larry? I think it was in 2005 when we were at the conference that started this podcast. That app yeah. scanned. What were they called back then? I don't oh. even remember now. Was, the, was, that, NPO, was that NTO Spider? Nope, it was way yeah. before NTO Spider. I don't remember the name of the company, but they had one of the big app scanners at the at the time. Yeah.
1: But, uh, you know, sort of that first generation, that first wave of acquisitions, I I think IBM, uh, I don't recall that they were really involved in that, but they certainly took a lesson. I I was very impressed that I met somebody that was, and there was quite a few people that were still from the original ISS still working for IBM. I thought that was a a great testament to, Hmm. oh, IBM's doing something right that they haven't cast everybody off and, uh, especially from the consulting side. So like the, the guy that runs X force, a uh, gentleman named Charles Henderson, he and I used to work together way back at Trustwave. And, um, uh, you know, I, I had a chance to very briefly, uh, meet up with him. I hadn't seen him in years and, you know, we're going to get together again sometime soon. But, uh, so, you know, that was going into it, like just sort of getting my head around, Oh, IBM. Yeah. That, that, this is what's going on. The you know the special sauce what's the big thing about so much of what IBM's doing is this whole idea of machine learning and cognitive and they're trying to apply that to all the different technologies that they have and that was a lot of the talks that I heard and and you know probably you know one of the most significant ones was they 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 were talking about Q radar you know their threat detection platform um, you know which you can argue whether you like it as a platform, remember the legacy before it was acquired, but applying the machine learning, applying Watson to it, they were talking about um, you know eighty five minutes to to the average time to to handle an event down to two minutes that's significant that's saying something, and I might not have the numbers right, but you know they have they have talks out there, but it was something huge like that 80, 80 something down to one or two minutes. Um, so there's certainly the idea that machine learning and that much computing power and automation being applied to. I think what a lot of times we agree to is this overwhelming amount of data that's coming in in terms of you know just network activity, having to monitor everything. How do you know what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's bad? Yeah, you know, we talked about it with the uh, sorry Jeff. I was confusing. Endgame, I
0: was ago. confusing uh, IBM and in HP. HP bought Spy Dynamics. That was the company oh, that I okay. was actually thinking of. Okay. And then around the same time I think I, um, AppScan was originally developed by, developed by an Israeli software company Sanctum Limited. So they both made acquisitions yes. in that
1: in that area. Okay. Yes. Yes. Okay. So it was AppScan and what was
0: the HP got uh, HP's uh, WebInspect and that was uh, inspect, originally inspect. Spy Dynamics.
1: Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah, it's all coming back to us. Mm. So, um you know the biggest thing that ibm has has got going for it is obviously the watson and the way the watson is uh being applied in many places and they're making a serious investment into putting watson into uh the security operations center in fact somebody decided to innovate and uh, and uh you know give watson a voice so you could actually talk interactively with watson so and they had a demonstration of that um It it was weird, but it was kind of cool too. Um, you know, a lot of, a lot of the companies now that are, you know, have, if you go to a website and the little thing pops up, Hey, talk to somebody now. Well, you're really talking to a bot. Right. And, uh, it, it was, it reminded me of that a little bit, but on a much larger scale, um, One of the really coolest things that they talked about, and it's in Cambridge, we should somehow do a security weekly field trip or something, but the X-Force has opened up a command center and they call it a cyber range. And what they're doing is they've set up a mock company in a mock security operations center. They invite companies to come in and not just the tech people. And they, in fact, they're not even focused on the admins and, and the security people. They want the managers to come in. They want the 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 C-level people to come in. And they go through a mock exercise of a breach. Like they have a room with a green screen and they say, okay. The media wants to talk to you in 90 seconds. Who's going to go talk to the press? Go. And then they make you go do it. And so they just kind of they they're not going through the detection, they're going through the response. What do you do in terms of a breach? You know, who's calling law enforcement? Who's the who's the public relations liaison? Who's getting in touch with you know, if it's a if it's a retail thing, the card brands or whoever you know, the governing agencies are. And they they have this half-day program set up where you just go in and experience how to handle a breach. That sounded really cool. I was hoping to to try to get a tour of it next week when I'm up at the, in the area for B sides, but they're not going to be around. But we should definitely try to do like a you know a road trip or broadcast you know remotely from the the cyber range sometime that's over in Cambridge. Nice. Yeah, that'd be really cool. Um, and and to underscore the fact, that, you know, just some closing thoughts that IBM has humanity in mind and they're trying to better society. I thought one of the coolest things was, you know, they had twenty some thousand people attending, and the whole time it was going on in a corner of the um, of the uh, expo area, uh, the convention center area. They had uh, a group come come in that was uh, assembling. Um, basically food packages putting meals together and they had everybody volunteer their time so all the attendees all the executives all the important people all took time to go over and help package up and create meals for Hmm. for underprivileged and poor people in in third world countries and and stuff like that and their goal was to their goal i think was to get a hundred thousand meals assembled and they got close they got before they had to shut it down i think they got to 75 or 80,000 something like that. So it was just kind of cool to see, you know, important people, you know, managers, guests, you know, everybody just kind of rolled up their sleeves, put on the plastic gloves, and you know, I had to wear the mask cuz I mm-hmm. had a beer and, and a hairnet and all that even though I don't, well, don't I really need a hairnet. Um <laughs> but you know, rules are rules and I followed the rules. Mm-hmm. And uh, you yeah, so that was kind of cool. And um uh, so yeah, they're doing some amazing things, and they're, they're definitely focused on security because it's security that you know they recognize is kind of not going away, and is kind of an important piece to this whole puzzle we call life.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks for the update, Jeff. That's really cool. I'm glad. Um, I'm actually I'm glad actually you get to spend some time with both <clears throat> two of the largest companies in technology that, and it's refreshing mm-hmm. for us in security to see that they have a, a, a focus on security. Uh, and get yes. put up with them. So that's awesome.
1: And ra- randomly, just final thought, uh, not that anybody cares, but the first day I'm there, I go on the Twitter and I see a picture of Jason street saying, Hey, I'm in Vegas. I'm like, dude, you're in Vegas. I'm in Vegas. So I got together with Jason. and We hung out one night. Nice. That's awesome. Yep. It was fun to see another hacker in Vegas. Cause, you <laughs> know, it's weird to be in Vegas without another not hacker. hacker summer. Yes,
0: yes. Need to buddy up with hackers in Vegas. I agree. With that, we're going to take right. a short break. Come back and talk about the security news for this week. So stay tuned. Don't go anywhere. Gain control of cyber risk with Tenable I.O., the first vulnerability management platform built for today's elastic assets like cloud, containers, and web apps. Discover a fresh, asset-based approach that prioritizes vulnerabilities while seamlessly integrating into your environment. And improve ROI with the first elastic licensing approach based on assets, not IP addresses. Tenable I.O. delivers the data and context you need to secure your elastic attack surface. Start your free Tenable I.O. trial today by visiting tenable.io. The average time between being hacked and realizing you've been hacked is one year. Can you afford to let an intruder roam your network for that long? Can your company weather the fallout when this comes to light? Black Hills Information Security can find the bad guys in your network and train you to do it yourself. Email consulting at blackhillsinfosec.com to find out how a hunt teaming engagement can help you find a persistent threat in your network it pro tv an easy entertaining approach to online it training stream over 2,000 hours of up-to-date high quality video content live and on demand for a free seven-day trial and for a limited time get 50 percent off a monthly membership for the lifetime of your active subscription visit itpro.tv forward slash security weekly and use the code sw50 Has your network been breached? Cyber Reason can help you answer this question. Cyber Reason products hunt for threats within your network and eliminate them in real time. To Cyber Reason, real time means within seconds. Founded by former military hackers who don't play by the rules, they've built this experience into their platform. Harness ingenuity and imagination, not just code, to defeat attackers. Cyber Reason. Disrupt the adversary and let the hunt begin. Welcome back, everyone, to Security Weekly. So last night I realized... um, that I had not documented for some of our newer employees the uh, rules and guidelines when you attend a hacker conference. We've talked about this on the show before. There's countless numbers of articles, most of which are very bad, about telling you how to protect yourself when you attend a hacker conference. Uh, some of my newer employees uh, attended their first hacker conference. Uh, well, it's InfoSec World. But as we've had Catherine on the show before, she's bringing in people from the larger security community to come present therefore exposing my employees to uh, hackers. And I had done a poor job of communicating some of those uh, rules and guidelines to my employees. So I have, uh, last night, very late at night, I created a list of 20 things that you'll see in an upcoming segment here on Security Weekly of 20 things basically not to do and how to protect yourself uh, at conferences. I was just looking at a, a Facebook post from Dave Shackelford and Dave's like, some dude left his laptop and phone unattended in the like uh, lounge club area in Atlanta airport, and that's really bad. <laughs> and that is on my list. To give you a sneak preview, things you should never do at a hacker conference is leave any of your devices or technology unattended at any time. Uh, very important rule. Locked attending. or
3: unlocked.
0: Locked or unlocked does not matter. Do not ever leave your devices uh, unattended. Very bad.
3: Is it physical access is key.
0: Yes, yes. There's some other. There's a couple of hilarious things and a lot of practical uh, advice. So we'll do that as a uh, a technical segment. Uh, it might even have to be a two part technical segment because there's a lot of things on the list to talk about. So maybe we'll do them ten at a time. Uh, so that'll be fun. <laughs> Speaking of fun. This week, we've got a lot of fun stories to talk about. Larry, did you see the uh, Google Project Zero post about Wi-Fi driver exploitation?
3: Oh, God. Some light reading there. That's
0: what I posted on social media. I knew it some light reading. I, I, I was, uh, unfortunately, not able to really distill it down um, for the audience, really, all yeah. that well. I think because it was... A very lengthy post, extremely detailed, including details on the firmware analysis that uh, rides on the Broadcom chip that is included in um, both iPhone and Android platforms, both of which are vulnerable uh, because it looks like a bug in the the firmware of the drivers, or I don't know if there's a distinction there.
3: Yeah, and and I think that's very much the distinction. There is a uh, distinction. Uh, the, 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 I mean, the, the, the distinction in that. The, the Wi-Fi chipsets in these devices are often now coming with their own embedded MCUs, you know, microcontrollers, mm-hmm. and that it becomes an area there that becomes the problem, and that there's very little distinction now between a wireless chipset and some other controller.
0: Well, yeah, the, the wireless chipset is essentially, a, like you said, Larry, a microcontroller. It's a computer. It's an operating system in and of itself. I mean, that's what firmware kind of denotes, and the vulnerability was in, embedded somewhere in there, which, from what I read, affects both uh, again iPhones and Android devices. So, yep, and it, it looks to be a you know a straight buffer overflow. Um, although the the details are linked in the show notes, and it's a it's a it's a healthy read. It's a, it's going to take us time to decipher uh, and uh, ingest all of the information uh, in the very detailed post that was put out there.
3: Yep, exactly. And uh, I think this is also really interesting in that uh, Apple has already pushed a patch for it um, because it is allegedly that serious.
0: And I, I saw post trying to make the distinction between being on the same network and not being on the same network. And from covering uh, wireless uh, driver and chipset vulnerabilities in the past, Larry, you and I both know that a lot of times it doesn't require that you're on the connected to the same SSID but that you're just on the same channel which is yep. a big distinction in in this case.
3: And, and and the other one too that I mean being on the same network is is kind of a moot point at this point because you just look for the beacons for the various devices and then you become that network and then you're on the same network whether or not it's a real network or not that's a different story altogether.
0: Right right so. yeah, there's lots of different scenarios uh, so everyone should go read that, and I think hopefully next week, Larry, we should probably have some more information on that. It's going to take us time. I didn't see it until today, so
1: You were sunning yourself in Orlando. I was
0: sunning myself in Orlando, And Larry, I really want to get your take on it as well, because uh, you're still instructing the wireless course for yes. uh, for sands, which this will probably be covered in some way, shape, form or fashion. Like, the next time you teach this class, you're going to get a question from a student about this, so you're going to have to learn it whether you like it or not. Yep, Uh, and
3: that that will be starting Sunday that I'm teaching this class, so I better bone up up between uh, tomorrow and Saturday.
0: You're going to get that question. Um, There was an interesting post about some Android uh, ransomware, which it looks like, uh, the good news is it looked like it was pretty easy to uh, boot your Android phone up in safe mode and... uh, successfully bypass this particular ransomware. But this is a a trend that I've seen in, in malware in general in Android is the fact that a couple things, depending on the attack vector, which they were very, very light on the details in the actual attack vector, more talking about what happens after uh, the infected app gets installed on your phone, um, is that any Android app can either include another Android app inside of it, or be configured on the fly to basically include another Android app and run code, basically run arbitrary code, which seems to me like a gigantic flaw in the underlying architecture of Android, which greatly concerns me because I have an Android phone. Um, And I've been told this, but as someone that was on the show recently said this. I know Bull Bullock has done some presentations about... um, Doing fi- uh, uh, compromising fire sticks in this way basically you get them to install an app the app is legitimate but it includes another app that Bo wrote that is a, in fact a backdoor. so that is concerning uh, to me so it's a pretty cool read uh, in the show notes as well I guess we have to talk about the wifi sex toy with a built in uh, camera that failed a penetration test well, what's that got well, to do with security? The toy doesn't work. Throw it away. No, it, well, it works. It works. Are you
1: talking about a different type of penetration test?
0: Different type of <laughs> penetration test. <laughs> yes. This it was is like the creepiest thing uh, I've read on this subject. Of course, we had Renderman on the show talking about yep. this particular subject, and what you uh, don't necessarily get by reading some of the media press articles is that the camera. on this device is on the end that goes inside. That's where the camera is. And the camera is connected to some IoT, for lack of a better term, technology that uses Wi-Fi to create a hotspot that lets you stream the video from it.
1: I don't know. So interior body cavities, is that considered private information? Because you can't necessarily, I mean, wouldn't it be rather anonymous? I, I don't... I guess so. I guess so. I just thought that was very strange.
0: And if you read the technical write-up uh, from... Uh, so, the quote from the register is, "Pen test Partners, these jokes just write themselves, uh, took a look at the device and have a full technical uh, write-up. Essentially, you can use Wiggle. Again, the jokes just keep writing themselves. <laughs> Wiggle is the site that logs all of the SSIDs. It uses a standard SSID uh, associated with the company that makes this device and see who has this device. And with their exploit um, that exploits a backdoor, for lack of a better term, Yes, Uh, and basically streams the video from the camera on this device uh, to your laptop or or other device.
3: So now... You go read the technical review of this story, and then go to the Internet of Dongs and read Renderman's response to this release.
0: Oh, so I did not see this. What does Renderman oh. have to say about this?
3: So, yes, you go to Wiggle and you search for the default SSID for this uh, for this particular device with the camera, and there are a total of exactly two listed on Wiggle.
0: Okay. well these devices are like $250 according to the Pentest Partners
3: Yep. so there's some other things that he pointed out that very much this industry in which these devices are being used and distributed and marketed uh, these are folks that have no clue about they have some clue about privacy Mm -hmm. but they have no clue about the potential hacking privacy and in fact you know many times these Emails that the folks are sending in to release, uh, talk to them about security stuff is getting lost in just uh, a barrage of marketing emails and uh, a bunch of other stuff because there's likely one person in the company that is responsible for answering all of their generic emails.
0: Yeah, and well, in the MAC address comes back to it, looks like they bought uh, the hardware from China.
3: Yep, it's it's dual purpose hardware. And in Mm -hmm. fact, oh yeah, uh, it's a drone. Yep, the hardware is used in drones, and some of the features that they claimed were available may or may not be available because they were commented out and some of those types of things. I gotcha. Okay. Uh, some of the other things with the disclosure, um, the the disclosure timeline, when they said they were hearing no responses yet, they decided to go to quote release anyways. Um, Render pointed out some very interesting things in that the times when they chose to do the initial contact. Were say one during the Saturday, like after Christmas, when no one's at work and may not be at work until uh, you know the the first of the year, and then they heard no response. The second time that they chose to do the notification was also during some of the adult industry's largest uh, mm-hmm. trade shows. Yeah, when in fact the person is probably standing in a booth, pro- trying to sell their product. Right. And not necessarily looking at their emails and by the time they get back they've got thousands of emails that and this one just they're not technical people. They're potentially marketing people and yeah, you know, I don't know what this is and I'm just gonna skip it.
1: Right. I've right. heard that one before.
3: Yep. <clears throat> so I think I mean, some issues with that the from Pentest partners from that point, but uh, and I think you know, Pentest partners may have tried to sensationalize a little bit on this, but then again, you know, who can blame them really?
0: Well, and then here we are talking about Pentest Partners, right, for the first time ever. But
1: think of, but think of the fun that we can have with all the double entendres, like you know. Do they do they establish a persistent connection, and do they have to reverse tunnel? Ooh, Wow.
0: The imagery, so to That's speak. That's all I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, as well. So I thought it was interesting in the. Like as creative as we are and as creative as a discussion as we had with Render Man, you know, now here's another device that's yet even more creative than we thought in putting a, yeah. uh, you know, camera inside of these devices. It just it kinda makes you wonder what's next and I think really highlights the uh kind of scariness that is the vulnerabilities in, in these products and, and where it could go from here. So um it seems to me like in all of the IoT uh, craze that we have with, with respects to security, that the sex toy industry is lagging behind more so than any other industry, which is really saying something about how poor uh, security controls are being implemented uh, in this industry.
3: Right, right, and in that particular industry, they they they're not technologists. They have I right. mean, this is some of the first foray they've gone into into technology, um, you know. So
0: they were analog devices up and you know up until a certain point, right?
3: Yeah, and and it's this is a foreign concept to them.
0: Yeah, well, uh, similar to uh, industrial control systems too, right? I mean, it was completely analog, not connected to anything. I mean, it was basically serial connections uh, before Ethernet, so. Uh, I, I think this industry is growing from a, a similar uh, strategy and culture, and I think it's going to take uh, some time before they come around.
3: Yep, and, and I'd argue a lot of the industrial control system stuff is still, still. serial, yep. but have just had a media converter put on it to make it Ethernet now. Yep. So,
0: <clears throat> so very interesting. Uh, like I said, just when I thought we were really creative and thinking of what could come next, and here it is.
1: Did I just say that? Okay. So, so, as long as we're talking about devices, let me interject uh, a brief story. I just put up a video that the, the makers of the CypherCon badge, which Larry and I have been talking about a little bit,
3: uh, um,
1: uh, over the top amazing what they did with this badge. You know, for a second year conference, uh, everybody was blown away. Um, and and Larry, I promise I will bring it to the studio and leave it so you can play with it. It's basically its own capture-the-flag built into yep. it with lots and yep. lots of fun and, and exciting things to discover. Yep. That's awesome. Uh,
3: the, the, ba- the badge is awesome. I mean, these guys spent nearly a year building this from the stories that wow. I heard, and just some of the stuff that they did with it is is amazing. Um, the part that really got me... Is that uh, the part that I find that is fantastic, which is one that I've been trying to see if I could implement, is the text based adventure via the USB port and once you complete the text based adventure, it unlocks something else.
1: yep, that part was actually pretty cool. They actually had a they had a lot of activity tables and one was hacking uh, old arcade games, so they had all sorts of old systems with the old original. Uh, video games that I used to play back in the day—it was a lot of fun, e- including Adventure, the original. Nice. You're, you know, what is it? You're in, you're in a clearing in the woods, or something like that.
0: Yep. And speaking of IOD, Larry, did you see the story about? Um, this is right up your alley. Sam's uh, smart TV hack embeds yeah. attack code into the broadcast signal, and the way that I understand this is. When TVs receive a broadcast signal over that mechanism, that radio frequency or that uh, particular protocol that you get from a a TV Uh broadcast station, there's a TAC code embedded in there that basically compromises the firmware of the device. And then that device can be used as a transmitter or it spreads over the internet from there. I wasn't sure which. It was very...
3: Yeah, Very confusing. I didn't, get, I didn't get the second half of that, but it was I, and you know I, the part that was really fascinating to me was the part of the over-the-air type of stuff in which you can basically create your own uh, TV transmitter uh, with uh, DVB-T. You know, we talked about this RTL-SDR thing for for uh, for a lot these cheap, inexpensive twenty-dollar uh, software-defined radios. Uh, that's what these were intended to receive was uh, digital uh, broadcast terrestrial. Um, and that's effectively what you're sending to the TVs to um, I- inject some code. So not only is it potential to send the video, but there's multiple quote sub channels in which uh, other information uh, can be sent. So think about your, in a modern vehicle, when you have your FM radio in your, your modern vehicle, um, you turn on the radio, and it tells you what song is playing over the FM station.
2: So mm-hmm.
3: so not only are they sending the audio, there's also a digital format that's, quote, inaudible uh, that is being processed, and I, I think it's largely around that digital portion, I gotcha. uh, that sub-carrier, as well, it were. What they said is that
0: the- if you could take over a TV station, which immediately made me think of, of course, the 1995 movie Hackers, where... Yeah. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> crash, Override, and Acid Burn are battling on the TV station, right? And they're trying to hack into the TV station. If they only knew that this exploit existed, that would have been
1: awesome. If only they'd had smart TVs back then. Yeah.
3: Yeah no, yeah, no smart TVs and no DVB-T. Uh, uh, but from my understanding and thinking about some of the projects that I know about um, – it would be, in fact, very simple to re-implement and not necessarily take over a TV tower, but you could do it with a smaller, low-powered transmitter, uh, get closer to your device, and it would be, be game over. Like, you could implement this, practically speaking, from a Raspberry Pi.
0: Hmm. Interesting.
3: With either uh, something like a HackRF or uh, the uh, implementation that toggles the GPIO pin to create uh, RF energy.
0: Now, what's interesting? There's another story where um, a researcher, uh, I want to say from Kaspersky's labs, um, analyzed Samsung's Tizen, Tizen, which is their firmware, uh, open source, I believe, based firmware. Um, It's kind of it's uh, like Android. It's built on a Linux kernel. Okay, Uh, called it the worst code that he's ever seen, Um, and is just riddled with ridiculous buffer overflows uh, widespread due to issues such as the improper use of stir copy um, and other such things
1: yeah so well, you know not to defend the developers but you know what were they writing to did they does it work and did they meet their objectives
0: well yeah and that's how we end up in the situation of IoT security it, Oh, uh, let's see. Where do we want to go from here? Uh, do we want to talk about Uber and Lyft? Do you guys use Uber and Lyft? I do. Do you use Uber or Lyft or both? I use Uber. Okay. Um, kind of like a side note, not security related. Uh, I was like catching like bits and pieces of the news about Uber, which I wasn't following very closely, about all the troubles they've been having. Apparently, they had like the worst march ever apparently there were a lot of uh, sexual harassment allegations at the company apparently there was the whole delete uber yep. campaign that stemmed from uber not supporting the uh, the uh, strike by taxi drivers due to the Trump's enforcement of um, uh, border control uh, legislation that was pushed through um, there was uh, they hired the target executive that was supposed to come in and help clean up the image, and and that person left after like eight months. So Uber's had like a a really rough go at it. Also in Massachusetts, it was found that um, Uber and Lyft drivers, uh, apparently in Massachusetts, you can go back further than seven years to do a background check, and they did that, and they uh, basically canceled uh, over 8,000 accounts from both Uber and Lyft due to various violations uh, of those persons record, including 51 sex offenders, which I thought was very scary. We were just talking about Uber because we were traveling uh, recently. So I don't know how that ties to security, but there was a lot of news about Uber uh, in Lyft recently. And I know a lot of us, of course, travel on a regular basis and use Uber uh, to yep. get around.
3: Now, now that said, uh, when I use uh, when I use Uber and I don't know how Lyft works, you can in, in many locations you can pick the level of service that you want. Yes, and so you can pick the Uber X or you can pick the quote black car.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, the Uber X is just some random dude that's got a car that picks you up, right? That has signed up and potentially done a background check. The Uber uh, the Uber Select uh, black car type service. Is very much those that have uh, engaged with various folks to um, have a uh, a lease on a higher class vehicle a, you know like a town car and like a navigator or something of the like um, so there 's significantly more vetting that happens there
0: uh, apparently um, the big differentiator between I, I got this from the the Twit network. network um, think it was this week in tech was talking about it the big difference between uber uber and Lyft is with Lyft, you can put the tip right in the app. With Uber, you can't. And that's been a big usability issue uh, with Uber, and they're kind of cagey about how they, Uber addresses that issue. Uh, but with Lyft, you can put the, the the tip right in there.
3: Yep, now that's, you know, that's my bad. understanding is... Uh, oh, sorry, sorry, Jeff, go ahead. Uh,
1: well, go ahead and finish your thought, because I was going to shift gears a little bit. Still okay. Uber-related. Okay.
3: Yep, now, now my thought, my understanding was that Lyft... Uh, the prices were lower so that you were able to include said tip based on performance. Uh, but the, the wonderful part about Uber was that it was one transaction game over. Your tip was included to the driver right? Um, and uh, they did that by, uh, you know, averaging that out based on the fact that you were a good driver and you got good ratings. So mm-hmm. if you give them a good rating, it effectively, they get to keep working and they get these uh, decent salary and decent tips on top of it. So it's you. a little bit more expensive from Uber. I
0: also heard that, before you go, Jeff, that uh, Uber uh, raised prices but didn't give the drivers any more money. It was more expensive for Uber, but the drivers didn't get that. So there's a lot of a lot of stuff happening with this service. Also, Uber had that automated automated car that got into a crash, which was in bad press for them. I don't know how much FUD there was behind that as well, but that was some other yep. things in the news. So, uh, Jeff, sorry, go ahead.
1: Uh, so I actually heard a, a news story on Uber, I think it was just today, um, disturbing in a whole different way, but apparently in large city centers it is becoming more and more common for people to call Uber rather than emergency services. So. You know, you're having a medical crisis, medical emergency. They're going to take an Uber call. to the hospital, so they're calling the Uber <laughs> to get to the hospital. That is uh,
0: an interesting security scenario, right? <laughs> yep, that's yep. very. Very well
1: and they were they interviewed a, a couple people that had done it and one one woman i think was pregnant and so she had gone into labor and she wanted to get to the hospital fast so she called an uber <laughs> but somebody but somebody else apparently had cut their hand very badly they were bleeding profusely and they didn't want to get blood in their car so they called an uber and that driver actually refused them <laughs> uh, huh. as I they sat there they, and they were to do that
0: they do yep. that's interesting
1: so not, uh, not at all security related but fast it's fascinating when you come up with new business models yeah the 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 thing that the nuances that you encounter that right. you never thought of before well and
0: it's this, interesting it's, Jeff, along along those lines uh garage 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 garage
3: garage garaget, gar, garage gar,
0: garadget. Gar, gar, garage 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 uh, garage they garage uh, garage door openers. Uh, that are IoT devices. And apparently there was a user that was having a bad experience and it wasn't operating correctly and posted some nasty messages uh, in an Amazon review and posted some nasty messages using expletives as well uh, on the company's website. And the support person at Garagit or however you say that um, actually disabled their account because... (laughs) In the IoT world, as Larry, you and I have talked about, Larry's talked about in his recent presentations, is it's all connected to the cloud, right? Like all these devices like have an account in the cloud, like disable the dude's account so he couldn't get into his garage. Ah. <laughs> Which I thought was a very interesting use case when we talk about IoT, is if you piss off the vendor, I mean, Larry and I use Arlo and I did a, a segment, we'll, we'll have to do a follow up segment on, on Arlo as well. Um, when you use Ring, uh, and any number of these services, um, you're logging into their cloud infrastructure. You know, It has an app, but the app is using an API that's in the cloud. They very well could just turn off your account, right? And you don't have access to any of their services uh, and do that at their own discretion, which is, uh, I think, underscores why with uh, security cameras, uh, people always uh, advocate and get really mad if you can't keep your recordings locally. Um, but also is very interesting when we talk about IoT devices. You know, God forbid someone turns off access to your refrigerator or something. So, and this isn't even someone hacking it. This is the actual the company themselves saying, "Nope, you don't have access anymore."
1: So, what was the upshot? Did the uh, service guy get in trouble? Did the you know what did what did the customer end up doing?
0: The customer ended up seeking uh, Amazon to send the device va- back and get a refund. Because <clears throat> essentially the customer said it's not working anymore, so therefore I want a refund. Not a good way to treat your customers, even if your customers so, being a big jerk. Not very good press for however you say that name. Yep, Garage customer,
3: customers, customers being a big jerk, and then uh, uh, company being a quote petulant child.
0: Yes, yes. The exchange is, is detailed in the article uh, from the BBC that's in the show notes. So I guess the moral of the story is, like, don't piss off uh, your cloud IoT provider, because they'll just turn your access off.
1: Or Don't piss off anybody.
0: <clears throat> that is a strategy as well, a difficult strategy to live by, I find sometimes. It is true. What else is going on out there, Jeff, Larry?
3: Um, so some of the other ones that, uh, that, uh, that I saw there, um, you had some of the same, very same, uh, stories there. Um, I, I want to say I had another one that was interesting. Let me, uh, see if I can pull this up here. Uh, let's see. Uh, some stuff on some additional Samsung TV stuff, and I don't have a lot of detail, um, specifically around some Samsung TVs that was presented at InfiltrateCon. Uh, today there's a couple of zero days, uh, or a zero day being released. And along the lines of, there is a single device whitelisted, uh, that can connect to the TV and has elevated rights. And it's based on Mac address. Interesting. So apparently all you needed to do is just make your Mac address, that Mac address, and you can connect to the TV and access it with, uh, significantly fewer restrictions.
0: Is that a, is that a Samsung? A
1: back daddy.
0: Is that, that? is that specific to a manufacturer, Larry? Or?
3: Samsung, Samsung.
0: Wow. That's like three really bad news stories yep. for Samsung this week. Well, I guess the first is, is not just specific to Samsung with the, the TV broadcast, but certainly the firmware and then... This other one that uh, infiltrate, which is is that the one in Miami, Dave Itels, that's Dave Itels' conference, yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. Yeah, There's apparently some really interesting stuff coming out of Infiltrate today. Awesome, but uh, some of the other stuff, uh, uh, Schneider Electric, uh, they're one of the large PLCs, PLC manufacturers, providing uh, lots of Scada and ICS gear. Um, Yet another set of problems with their. Um, Modicon line of devices with some hard-coded passwords embedded in their firmware that can't be changed Um, and and you start thinking, you know, I've I've spent a lot of time reading the the Countdown to Zero Day, which was the recount of um, uh, Stuxnet, and I'm almost done. I've got like 45 minutes left for the book. uh, Audio. And then, uh, Jeff, (laughs) what was the other one that you were in?
1: Oh, uh, Dark Territory.
3: Our territory, and you know this is all the same stuff that we're talking about for for these types of attacks and used all over the place in various i c s systems including um, uh, critical infrastructure so this becomes really scary to me
1: it's I have to chuckle that you're describing how much you have left in the book in terms of minutes rather than pages.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I can time it. I know exactly how long it's going to take me to read this book. And by read, I mean, uh, you know, listen to.
1: No, that's, and it's awesome. It's just, you know, it it just sounded funny to me because I'm accustomed to saying, oh, I got 200 pages left, 100 pages left. Who knows how long it would take me to read it?
3: Yep, in fact, that's I've cool. got 30 minutes.
1: Awesome. Now, does that include the closing credits or do they do that?
3: Um, you know? they do, but they're usually pretty short. So, uh, yeah, I really don't even count those. Cool.
1: Very cool. Well, Jeff, Jeff, one more real quickly, mm-hmm. Uh, and it's sort of a shifting of gears. The last time I was on the show a couple weeks ago, we talked about the passing of Becky base and, um, Uh, I went out to Vegas after that, came home from Vegas on a Thursday, was home for about 24 hours. Ron Gula and I were able to fly down uh, to – we actually flew to Pensacola, drove over to Mobile, Alabama, which is where they had a a memorial service for her. Um, She was working down there at the time for the University of South Alabama. Um. Yeah, you know, we you know in, in our tra in our travels we talked about gee we really should do something you know as far as on the east coast because Mobile is a hard place to get to and a lot of people weren't able to make it. So the other link that I have up on the on the show notes is uh, an announcement and an invitation we're going to be doing on May seventh a uh, uh, you know a time of remembrance for Becky for you know people in the D.C. Maryland area primarily ex NSA people current NSA people. But, you know, it's certainly an open invitation. It's a whole lot easier to get to this area than it is to Mobile, Alabama. So if anybody has an interest in going, I believe it's from 1 to 4 p.m., and it's at a, it's at a beer place called Jailbreak, which if you're in the area, you, you're probably familiar with Jailbreak. So I just wanted to throw that out there and let people know about it if anybody is uh, so moved or motivated to, to come and have a time of remembrance for Becky.
0: Thank you, uh, Jeff and Larry, for uh, participating in this edition of Paul's Security Weekly. Uh, And uh, certainly having a remembrance in a a more easy-to-get-to place is a a really nice thing to have. Uh, So I do encourage people to attend. And certainly there are a lot of people who knew Becky that are in that area, Jeff, uh, as well. So I'm assuming you'll be in attendance to that?
1: Oh, yes. Yep, I'll be there.
0: Excellent. Well, thanks, everyone. And, uh, and, uh,
3: just a real quick one, Paul. I'll be yeah. at B-Sides Orlando on Saturday and doing a, a presentation in a style that I've never done before, which you hate, Prezi. And uh, going through this presentation, I started scaring myself because I'm telling a telling a really great story about two-factor authentication. Sweet. And it's. Uh,
0: I heard a rumor that John Strand's going to be at B-Sides Orlando. Is that true?
3: I wouldn't be surprised uh, given that he is going to be at Sands Orlando the following day. Mm-hmm. Um, let me, so Bo Bullock uh, at Black Hills is giving a talk uh, there. Uh, let's see. Uh, Tim Medine is giving a talk there. John Strand is giving a talk at 2.30 PM. Immediately see? following me.
0: Rumor, confirmed.
1: Rumor yep. confirmed.
0: And then
3: immediately following John Strand is Deviant Alam.
1: Wow. So hey and, and next weekend is uh, besides Boston, and I think uh, we're going to have quite a contingent from the show there as well.
0: We will. Um, myself um, I think Riley is, Sam and Keith, uh, who all work for Security Week will, will be there. I believe that's the four of us We're, we're driving up on, on Saturday morning. Uh, Jack will be there Jeff you'll be there uh, yep. so it'll be, it'll be good times be good times.
3: Yep yeah party. I get pinged to uh, fill in for someone that uh, that had to had to cancel on them last minute, and uh, unfortunately, it's the the day I come back from Orlando. If I recall correctly, so I wasn't able to make it. Uh, oh, we
0: would have had a, such an awesome time too, Larry. Yep, <laughs> yep. Change your flight. Change your flight. Come into Boston. Come directly into Boston. <laughs> I'll early. pick you. I'll oh, drive my. into Boston in the morning, Larry, and come pick you up and take you to <laughs> take you to besides Boston. <laughs> Uh, well, thanks, everyone, for listening and watching Paul Security Weekly. We'll see everyone next time. Larry, take us out.
3: Over and out.